You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. Well, Carl, isn't it exciting to be back in the studio within a week of, of being at the UA conference and hearing Mary O'Kane launched the University Accord consultation process and discussion paper. Lots happened in a week and a lot's going to be happening in the next couple. Certainly from my perspective, I've had no real exposure to that many universities ever. And so going to the UA conference was mind-boggling, blowing, fascinating, interesting. I mean, it's left me with lots of information and a hell of a lot of questions too. So I'm I'm interested to see where we go here with Mary O'Kane in the Accord. I know for us, with our events coming up, uh, all the work that we're doing at the moment, it couldn't be better timing in terms of shaking the cage and affecting change. Well, I think um, changing higher education for good is what we set up to do, Carl, and um you know, looking back over a couple of years now, it was great to launch our new leadership agenda book after all the work we've done with 50 leaders in in the first instance with that book and 65 up until now. It was great to get that book launched in front of so many people at the conference and to see that leadership agenda so much at the heart of what Mary was able to, sh- to share as the challenges and that the issues that she wanted big ideas back against from the sector over this initial six-week period and before the end of the year when she reports to the Minister on what the long-term future of, of universities in Australia and the higher education sector is to be. Martin, one of the things that I find uh, a great contrast is in the past 10 years, I've been involved very heavily in two Royal Commissions, so an investigation into a particular sector. Now, that the nature of those investigations and the way that they were conducted uh, couldn't be further from what, we, what we're what we entering into now with, with the Mary O'Kane Accord. The Royal Commissions were based on fear. They're based on scrutiny, investigation, um, fault finding. Uh, whereas here we're in a situation where it's, a it's from what I heard from Mary in her address at uh, in Canberra last week, she was very welcoming, very interested in uh, drawing on the strengths of the sector to date, encouraging people to explore. And we talked about big, bold ideas, and there'll be more of that today in the podcast. But uh, I really liked her approach and her welcoming nature to this, rather than it being a a blowtorch-like scrutiny. Well, I think that's very much the spirit and the opportunity that we've got here, Carl, isn't it? That um, we have a sector that served Australia very well, um, that's been a great generator of of knowledge, of skills, of um, export revenue, of all sorts of benefits for the Australian people and for Australian industry and for the Australian nation. But we've got a renewed ambition coming out of that and a process that really is a constructive one, one based upon dialogue rather than, um, you know, scrutiny and, and, and accusation. It's one based on investigation and ideas and one that's really encouraging in the spirit of the, the conference itself, the coming together around events and, and dialogue to find new solutions. And it's so, so helpful for us to have our program of live events kicking off in two weeks today in Melbourne with so many leaders from the sector joining us um, to, to bring all of the conversations we've had to date into that, into that environment 
to really help find some big bold ideas and some some ways forward to continue the improvement of the sector it's um it's like our work in changing higher education for good has been now set in the context of some real policy development and a course that really matters to our members and to the sector it, it's a great opportunity I agree, Martin. The it's been quite validating for for our position, and certainly for for me as a newcomer and someone that's spent a lot of time in in well, in Mary's language, employer land or in industry, to come in and take a look and see quite obvious changes that I would consider uh, a, a need. Seeing quite obvious changes that will benefit everyone now being identified as areas of exploration for big bold ideas and innovation. Let's hear from Mary just after this short message from our sponsor. Enjoying the HeadX podcast you should check out The Thought Bubble, a podcast series where cross-disciplinary experts from all around the world share insights about emerging technologies and all the ways in which they can transform how we teach, learn, evaluate and experience higher education. Hear from Google, Meta, Holland IQ, KPMG, Duolingo and more. Find The Thought Bubble wherever you listen to your podcasts. Today's guest on HeadX is Professor Mary O'Kane, and Mary was the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Adelaide from 1996 to 2001, and was the New South Wales Chief Scientist and Engineer from 2008 for 10 years. She is Executive Chair of O'Kane Associates as a Sydney-based consulting practice, which specialises in government reviews. Applying that to her current role, she's Chair of the University's Accord Task Force, appointed by Minister Clare in 2022, and she's leading what can only be described, I think, as one of the most significant reviews of, of Australian higher education maybe ever undertaken. And with her panel, she's tasked with reporting on the long-term future of Australian education, reporting by the end of this year, but looking many years into the future. And the Accord aims to drive lasting and transformative reform in Australia's higher education system. And it's an opportunity to build a visionary plan for Australia's universities and higher education sector. The objective of the Accord is to devise recommendations and performance targets to improve quality, accessibility, affordability, and sustainability of higher education. And we'll talk about some of those different dimensions in a little while. And to look at the long-term security and prosperity of the sector for the nation. Mary, welcome to HeadEx. Thanks for having me. What does it mean to you to be entrusted to lead a process to oversee such a substantial review at, at this stage? Well, it's an enormous honour. Um, it's something I'm passionate about, about higher ed, and passionate about really good higher education in Australia, now, in all its aspects, in sort of learning, teaching, research, research training, in the community engagement side. It's something I really find truly fascinating and something I like contributing to. So it's an enormous honour. What would you point towards as the biggest issues of everything that's that's summarised in there and the biggest barriers to change in our system as it's currently set up, as outlined in your issues paper and the consultation process? I think that they're a very clever set of terms of reference we've been given. And they point very neatly, I think, to the biggest issues. And so it's the three, as I mentioned last week at the, uh, the University of Australia launch of the paper, the three big sort of national needs terms of reference, I think, are where the, the central focus needs to lie. The first one of those, of course, is meeting Australia's knowledge and skills needs now and into the future. The second one is access and opportunity that 
you know, I spoke about a little bit before. And the third is in its terms of reference version, delivering new knowledge, innovation and capability, which in shorthand we might refer to as research, but the longer version is actually what's, it, what's important within this review. Um, how Australia picks up new knowledge, innovation and capability is something that's tremendously important to a very secure economy. One of the really exciting things I took away from reading about the the accord and 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 hearing all the discussion about it in Canberra last week was a reflection of your op-ed at the start of the year calling for us all to generate big ideas for the benefit of the nation. That's a really open invitation to have radical thinking, isn't it? And I presume you're looking for big ideas in each of these areas of as the three that you've outlined there. And Absolutely. Good chance to sort of say thank you to you for the for the podcast, because I think it's things like podcasts that sort of bring ideas onto the table and you, you know, often draw on wonderful international examples. I think that's what helps get gets big ideas to us as the review. And uh, yes, we do want big ideas. We want people to be very bold in what they think of. We mightn't be able to implement all the great ideas we get. As a matter of fact, I hope we'll get far too many implement all, but we'll be able to sort of cherry pick and, and find good things and find inspiration in them. Because I think often in a system, it's easy to think within the walls of the system and not think we could change that, you know, not sort of look at something and say, is that the best we can do? Is that how we offer students the really best education? Or could we do something very different? And often doing something very different is not easy because often it requires multiple players in the system. And that's where a review comes out. And particularly a review with this emphasis on an accord. The idea of an accord I find truly fascinating. You know, I'm old enough to remember the, the one in the whole keeping government with the unions. And but the idea of one is very good. And as I mentioned at the uh, event at Universities Australia, Jenny Macklin on the panel uh, came up with our, our sort of best definition of what an accord is. And she said, accords bring people together to discuss challenges and agree a joint path forward. In higher education, this could mean a continuous and dynamic process of government coming together with universities, higher education providers, students, business unions and community leaders to agree on the best way that higher education can meet Australia's economic, cultural and social aspirations. And an accord will enable these aspirations to be continually developed over time as the needs of our nations change. So it's a situation where people come together to talk, but they don't just do it once. The parties come together and then come together again and adjust what they raise uh, over time and how they're going to solve the problems. And so I think what it means is this review is reporting at the end of the year, but it's by no means the end of the story. Hopefully it's setting up a process that will allow Australia to adjust its higher education system to keep it bold, to keep it right. Well, that's um, that's a very big departure from some of the things of the past, isn't it? And, and a change in style, perhaps, for a review like this, with that focus on a continue, continuity of, of new ideas and really setting the, the challenge down to be as brave and as bold and as big in our thinking in that regard as, as we possibly can be. So you're, you're throwing the challenge out to the whole sector over this next six weeks and for the rest of the year for some big ideas. Let, let me throw some 
that occur to me from, as you say, taking some conversations and some perspectives on international players as they've approached some of these issues of the accord. And you tell me if this is the sort of big idea yeah. that you think the accord process is therefore this year and, and into the future in, in that... Um, let me start with skills, um, the, the the need for more skills, the need for more volume, more appropriate skills. And some of the global exem exemplars of higher education we've been looking looking at at HEDEX in this podcast include this move away that seems to be happening in North America, but other parts of the world, a move away from a time-based model of education with all of the historical reasons why that was in place and all of the barriers and restrictions that that sometimes presents to a number of things, to a more competency-based education system. Can you see us having degrees awarded by Australian universities and others into Australia in the future, having connections, as you've already touched on, between VET and TAFE and higher education, all based on achieving levels of competency through radical new approaches to pedagogy, learning, and curriculum design, without the constraints of a time-based model, is that is that the sort of big idea for the future that you're thinking of? Absolutely, I think it's a great idea, and I think it raises some wonderful challenges to think about. What is competency in philosophy, for example? What is competency in sociology? Uh, it's probably easier to think of competency in chemistry. But some of the more theoretical areas, how do we really know what full competency is? But I think it, it is a great idea to talk about and one that I think raises some very interesting solutions to some very long-term problems. Well, I'm um, just picking up on that and, and, and coming back to you on that. Well, I mean, one of my recent guests was Paul LeBlanc, the president of Southern yeah. New Hampshire University in the US. I don't know if you've come across him. He's a big advocate of competency-based higher education. And he particularly thinks that the competency and the skills development in the critical thinking and the problem solving and the logistical analysis, for instance, could give a rebirth to the humanities as, a, as an area of study that could lead to hugely appropriate skills for the future of work in consulting organizations and complex project settings. I mean, are you seeing the chance for the big ideas that we might talk about having organizational and sector implications, but also re-energizing some of the thinking in our disciplines in some ways? Absolutely. And one of the things that we hear a lot from employers is that they're very interested in the generic skills, which typically include uh, critical thinking, being able to write and organise thoughts in a particular way. Yes, it could be done very much through a reinvigoration of the humanities. It could be done through the humanities working closely with other disciplines to see how those generic skills are manifest in, in the context of a series of other disciplines. And as you know, and I know from being deans of faculties, um, it can be very challenging to do that within within curriculum to mix approaches from different disciplines, and yet the fact that it's hard to do shouldn't be something we should we should in 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 developing good curriculum. But certainly, there's an enormous call from the employers for those sorts of skills. Just moving it on to that aspect of employers, this the issue that you've identified there of accessibility, which is at the heart of your terms of reference, and as I said, maybe is a, a stronger feature of these times of being so important for the future. We noted on another example of, of our podcast, Headaches, that 
the case of Arizona State University, very well known in the US, but perhaps less well known as its particular partnership with Starbucks. Yes. And ASU and Starbucks are just approaching the graduation of their 10,000 sponsored um, employee of Starbucks to graduate from Arizona State University from a online ASU degree as part of their workplace benefits. Here's an employer employing large numbers of non-graduates that make up a significant proportion of the mature age underrepresented university student population being given chances and opportunities through a strategic partnership between an innovative university and an employer to increase accessibility to higher education. Is that the sort of, or do you see a big idea and big ideas more generally in more partnerships between Australian universities and employers allowing that accessibility challenge to be overcome? Absolutely. I think that's a, it's a lovely example and of course, we are seeing some wonderful partnerships and have actually for quite a long time in Australian universities. But how do we get them on that sort of scale? I think is one of the big challenges. And you will have probably seen in the press this morning the report of Jennifer Westcott's installation as the new Chancellor of Western Sydney University and her saying that the partnerships between industry and universities you know, are so, so important. And you know, given her role as the CEO of the Business Council of Australia, that symbolism of her talking about that is, is incredible. And hopefully we will see some of the uh, partnerships, industry-university partnerships on the Arizona Starbucks, Arizona State Starbucks scale uh, here in Australia. Now, I think it's an, an exciting thing and certainly in the big idea category. All right, I'm going to throw one more at you from US for now then, and it's um, it relates to the, the terms of reference, as I understand it, in the sustainability area, in that um, Western Governors University in the US, I don't know if you know that place very well, it's yeah. grown to be, as I understand it, the world's largest online university. It's led by a president who's a non-academic, he's the former chief operating officer of Amazon Web, Web Store in Scott Pulsifer. And that university is now delivering degree programs, making extensive use of new technologies, targeting in particular underrepresented student groups and mature age lifelong learners. And the, the distinctiveness in the US marketplace is that they're able to offer that for a $20,000 price tag compared with a more typical $90,000 cost of a US degree. And Part of the argument that Scott in our podcast episode that will be coming out shortly articulates of being able to do that is that it's an institution that does no research. It has no phys physical campus and he celebrates the fact that it doesn't have a football team or any of the other community engagement trappings of a more conventional university. So is, is it within the bounds of encouraging big ideas and possibility of how we might move forward to see providers of low-cost degree-level education in Australia in the future from institutions, I won't call them universities right now, that look very different from most of our current 40 universities? Absolutely. And it's very much within the bounds of possibility, even within the system as it exists. You know, we have a range of higher education providers, private sector higher education providers now who do do great work and who don't necessarily do research, but they could move 
you know, they can do models very much along the lines you're saying. You need to test it against TEXA, of course, and, and against the various rules. But it's a it's a big idea, but not so far from, from where we are and what we could do. And certainly all of those things definitely go to the sort of access opportunities and um, as sort of winding back to where we were earlier in the conversation, to kids who never thought they might be able to go to university or somebody who's, you know, out in the country and um, wasn't sure how to do things, though a lot of our universities do offer wonderful online offerings as it is. So, um, okay, you've given me a reaction to, to three um US examples that I'm aware of, and we've been trying to share the story about. And, and there are, as, as you started your presentation at Canberra last week, very appropriately doing so many things to celebrate in what our universities do now and how strong the Australian system starts from while having room for improvement. But is, is it the case, and if so, why is it the case, that there haven't been more Australian universities that have been big, bold innovators up till now along the lines of if we think they are, the Arizona State University and the Western Governors and the Southern New Hampshire examples. Is it the case that Australian universities have not been such leading innovators up until now and do we want them to be? I think they have been actually very innovative in lots of ways, but maybe it's not in the ways you've highlighted. Um, maybe a lot of the innovation has come as universities have, have looked to funding sources to, um, to manage the sort of funding challenges that face them. So you, you see them developing new campuses, developing new offerings overseas and so on. And I think they've been very, very clever or managing their land holdings and things like that. But I think the innovation has been, the sort of bigger innovations have been those ones that are tackling the funding challenges. And I think we need to set up the incentives so that the innovations turn more on very good quality learning, on wonderful access, on the sort of things that lead to really good um, generation of people with appropriate skills, so the generic skills, the, the technical skills, whatever's needed. And that then I think raises, you know, we come back to the sort of subtle barriers and the subtle questions we talked about, raises questions of how you're going to fund it. Should the universities have to get even more innovative about funding? Or how does government step in? How does industry step in? What is the appropriate role of the student themselves in funding? Of course, we've got a very innovative system in using income contingent loans here, which has been copied around the world. Um, but should students have to pay more? You don't want to saddle them with very high debt. So there's questions of how you find funding, how you put incentives in place, how you celebrate good things when they happen. And there's loads to celebrate as you, you know, picked up on what I was saying last week. One of the things that strikes me having been away from the sector for a long time is just how many things there are to celebrate and how many great examples of good practice. So often there is innovation, but it's not always innovation at scale. It's done in one university, a couple of universities. Um, it's how you scale it up to be a whole industry involved or to be across all Australian universities or across a large proportion of them. And I think that is one of the big challenges how, of the review is how we get those incentives right, how we recommend appropriate funding structures. Very interesting. And you've, you've talked of a fair bit in some of those answers there about the issues of 
regulation and our approaches to regulation and how to work with regulatory environments. I'm going to throw another example at you, another international example from a different part of the world this time. Singapore. Singapore has an education, higher education ecosystem. I, I can remember the time, I'm sure you can remember the time where it was a source of international students for us in Australia that was so important as we were playing at the place, the part that we played in the world at that point in time of being such a dominant provider to that part of the world. And of course, things have moved on in Singapore that time, it, it, since that period. It's now um, developed its own mass and diversified set of providers to its own learners. And it's an exporter of higher education with a rather unusual regulatory environment. It's established two top 50 comprehensive research universities in NUS and NTU. It then uh, developed two subject specialist universities in the Singapore Management University and the Singapore University of Technology and Design. I'm sure you know you know this. And now has two more quite different and planned applied skills-oriented universities in the Singapore Institute of Technology and the Singapore University of Social Sciences. So is it within the bounds of our big ideas through an accord like this to see changes in the way that we approach regu the regulatory environment to not only allow but to plan for a greater diversification and specialization in mission, purpose and comprehensiveness or otherwise in both our current universities and those that we have in the future. It, is that what the Accords might see as a legitimate big idea and might embrace in the way that it moves through the year? It is, absolutely it is. It also raises the interesting question of why it hasn't happened to date and could it happen? Does it have to be centrally planned? Or should the universities that, as I said before, are very innovative, very creative, might they set up new structures. I mean, the government, I mean, we, we talked earlier, let's go back to the growth in the system. If there's going to be significant growth, there has to be to meet what seem to be the skills needs, then should there be new universities created? And if so, might we take the Singapore approach of deciding they're going to be of this type and that type and they're going to be here or there? Or might we leave it to the sector to pop out new structures that are sort of um, structures, you know, growing from the existing structures that might be specialist in, in some kind, in some way, or might be particularly aiming at very, very high performance in research and in learning. So I think one of the questions for us is actually, what's the best way to do it? Is it better to um, en enable the system to be creative itself, or is it better to plan it and to suggest, you know, or propose or to impose, if you like, um, new institutions? And I'd very much like comment on that. Okay. What would be the best way? I mean, it's been fascinating to watch Singapore develop. I remember it well from when it um, was a source of students. And at Adelaide, of course, we we're very proud of Singapore because we had as graduates the president and his wife and we had the deputy prime minister and we had lots of um, leaders from Malaysia as well as as graduates and it's been you know so it meant I've taken a close um, sort of close interest in that and 
to see it develop and flourish has been truly wonderful. But is their way of doing things appropriately our way? Or might we come to the same uh, answer, but by a different route? So comment, please. Well, that's a, an open invitation for um, lots of big ideas, I'm sure, and a broadening and a deepening of the debate. And um, getting comment over the next little while on a range of topics is is a, a great thing to be doing. And much of the commentary in our sector at the moment seems to have become preoccupied with some of the challenges that we've had of responding to the emergence of new technologies, particularly I'm referring here to generative AI as new ways in which knowledge can be harnessed by those entering the workforce. And us having a lot of internal debate in the sector about how we'll respond to that in how people will need to learn and harness those technologies, how skills can be verified and, and assured. I'm sure you've been mindful of that during this um, early part of the process too. I, I wonder, I wonder if you already have some views of how should the sector be part of an advancing change? We've got this real dilemma, haven't we? We want to advance change to be preparing a skilled workforce for the future. And are we best doing that by, do you think, deepening our relationships with the ed tech and big tech providers of technology that are relevant to workforces and technology that are relevant to universities? Should we be doing more of that in partnerships and dialogue, do you think, to ensure we've got the highest quality ways of preparing future graduates for a very different technologically enabled future of work? Is is that the path and the idea that you'd see us embarking upon? As a, an AI researcher um, in the speech and language area, it was, you know, it's, it's wonderful to see the technologies in action. For years, you know, we, we promoted them and... Um, wondered when they've taken it, then they've taken off. So that's remarkably satisfying. Um, but it's also remarkably um, challenging to sort of see some of the ways they're being misused. But the thing is, and this is great from the AI world, they're, they're here to stay and they're here to be used and to be used productively. So one of the great questions is how do we say this technology is here, it can be very useful, how do we use it? It, it does raise challenges. Um, then how do we work with those challenges to, to get somewhere? In terms of what's the best ed tech to, or should we partner? Yes, I think ed tech is something, again, has been a technological area that I think it's been slow to take off. And sometimes it just takes the right environment. And, you know, in this case, the pandemic has shot, all, shot the ed tech issue very much to the fore. And I think partnerships in the edtech area with institutions, institutions developing their own edtech, edtech consortia, I think are really important. And I think it re-raises the question, and the Deputy Vice-Chancellor's academic in a meeting with me with their executive recently were emphasising this. It raises the question of content and technology, and then about particularly the role of the teacher. What is happening to help people to learn well? Is it a mixture of content, ed tech, and then the magic of the teacher bringing it all together in some way? Is the teacher more of a guide showing you where to get things and how to get them? There's some really interesting questions on that. That's a sort of like a, a, a triangle of things, you know, ed tech, content, teacher. What are the various roles and what is the most important and what 
allows students of different backgrounds to really flourish when they're learning. Mm. It's um, a fascinating thing, and I hope to hear a lot about that because I think, as ever with universities, they're all about learning, they're all about knowledge and how we are going to help people learn over the next period, over the next you know, few years and then the next decades is, is something that we need to talk about. When I'm hearing you describe that, Mary, and in this um, um, interview as a whole, I'm I'm getting a sense that not only is this a pivotal moment with the O'Kane review, the O'Kane Accord, following everything that's come before, and Dawkins reforms and the Bradley review, if that's how we'll name it in the future, um, not only being this sort of seminal moment, but one that's focused on big ideas, which I think is great. But I'm also getting a sense in the way that our conversation's going that there's a really strong need and encouragement here for the sector to look beyond itself and how it has been doing things, and even beyond how the sector operates in other parts in the world, to thinking about how the future of economies and of um, learning and of sectors that's approaching such, such problems has happened beyond the bounds of our sector. Is, is that the scope of where you'd like to be seeing new, new big ideas coming into this accord? Absolutely. Looking to other sectors is often a great inspiration for our own because our sector is so endlessly fascinating, we can sort of get very tied up in it, whereas actually reaching out and looking at other sectors can be can be very important indeed, as happens in research. I mean, in, in the research side of universities, we absolutely touch other sectors very strongly because often we're doing research and we're generating new knowledge and we're reviewing knowledge in areas that are of importance in other parts of the economy and of society. And those partnerships that we develop there can be equally learning across, equally useful across in the learning and teaching side of things. So I think it's great to look out to other sectors, see how they've changed, see how they've adapted to new technologies, and then bringing that sort of part of the world back home and in. And um, look, you've launched a, a fabulously exciting accord process and consultation periods as recently as last week. And you're, I'm so delighted you come and joined the HeadX podcast today in the immediate aftermath of that. I presume as well as giving an open invitation to all institutions and peak bodies and, and groups like that, that you're also welcoming of other mechanisms by which big ideas might be surfaced and facilitated and the sector engaged. In the, we have the opportunity in HeadX on this podcast, but also live events to gain those sorts of insights from global university leaders, but also try and specifically generate new big ideas from outside the sector, from ed tech innovators, from big tech innovators into the challenges of the sector. What, what do you see as the opportunity for communities like the HeadX community and the many others, I'm sure, to, to be the facilitator and the provoker of, gener of big ideas into the accord process. Is, is that what you're looking for? Do you have any yes. words of invitation I, to us on that? Very, very much so. You've got listeners who have wonderful networks of their own. And if they can be, as you said, provoking, be provocative in raising things and getting people, getting the debate really going so that we're hearing it, you know, we start to hear it back from other people. You tend to know when you hear the echo effect that you're having a bit of a, an impact. And I think it's really good to take it out, to take it out too to 
whether it be to kids, you know, why not have, you know, young kids talking about universities and what they they want out of them, um, be it to sort of, you know, in Australia, of course, you get the best debate and the best ideas over the barbecue. And then, of course, you know, to take it out to, to industry and the rest of society we meet in our day-to-day work and get people talking about it, because a lot of people have gone to university. One of the great things about the Dawkins reforms and the, the Bradley Review is that the numbers in Australia have you know, gone up significantly. So there's a lot of people who have ideas about university, what was good, what was bad when they went, but maybe they're now in industry and can see what is needed for their particular industry, get them talking, and um, then sort of bringing it back. And also new ways of thinking about how to use technologies, as you said, whether it's the EdTech area or whether it's, again, in the research domain, new ways of thinking about problems, new ways of specifying them can be so important there as well. Well, one thing that um, I'm course I'm triggered to think about in hearing you describe that, and the the idea of of doing this over the barbecue. I've never thought of HeadX barbecues, but you've given me that idea now. <laughs> is that um, I don't know about the barbecues that you go to, but I, I find the ones that I go to have a lot of my friends and networks from the sector itself. But the conversation becomes quite different when you're talking to the parents of, or the alumni of, or the employers of graduates. Who, if I can use that that um, word that we sometimes squirm about, the the customers of our sector have a quite different way of articulating their expectations, their needs, and their encouragement to change. How are you going to systematically reach out to the customer view of higher education in this accord and get beyond the barbecues of all of us that are already in the game, thinking we know our own views about what should should change? Maybe I need to go to a different style of barbecue too. I think a lot of it is making sure we are talking to, to, if you like, the customer view. One of the things that I find really fascinating is talking to the student groups. As a, you know, somebody who took part in student politics in my time, it's always, I've always found that the student groups are some of the most interesting and most together in their thinking about what, what is needed and you know, what we should be producing. So it's it's actually making things. And I think that what you've said is a real exhortation to us to really make sure we do find kids. We also make sure we find older people who might be thinking of going to university for the first time or might be thinking of returning to university. One of the important things about upskilling, as they say, is often going back and getting a... a an up-to-date credential in some area where there might be better employment. And how should we be offering those things is something that's very much at the, you know, front and centre of things. You know, the whole issue of micro-credentials is a really important part of the skills agenda at the moment. And uh, the, taking a long-term view, I, I can't remember exactly what the date into the future was that you were talking about there at Canberra last week, but I seem to think it was 20, 30 years or so. Is That's right. Time horizon. I mean, it gives, um, you, you commented earlier on the softness of the domestic market in Australia this year and last year, and is that related to short-term you know, um, cyclical employment effects. Of course, if we take a longer term view, we've got much bigger demographic changes in ageing populations, declining birth rates. 
The mm-hmm. idea that university education might be primarily for school leavers with a little bit of lifelong learning to become significantly lifelong learning based of which the school leaver population might be a, a declining proportion of that population. Is that extent of long term changes in the demographics an important driver of this accord process? I think it's it's very important to think about that and to think about the changes in countries near us, where often the, the birth rate you know, is sort of on a different trajectory and um, how we might, you know, value the international links through international education and so on too in helping us deal with some of our challenges in that area. So the interesting sort of interlink between migration and skills I think it's another angle in that area, but you're quite right. We, we are going to see a very chain, changing demographic here. And then the question is, if we need to sort of keep the economy humming at the level we want it to hum, then we really do need to think about reskilling, lifelong learning, being able to do that quickly, being able to do it effectively, enjoyably even. Um, so it's not a a chore where people have to retrain in a way that's awful, but they actually look forward to the wonderful experience of coming back into the university orbit. Well, enjoyable um, is a, a different way of describing the challenge ahead of us, isn't it? And leads to other big ideas. But look, Mary, it's been fascinating to talk to you today and just bringing the, the interview towards a close. I mean, I, w- I wonder what your sense is this far in. You're leading the most significant review of Australian higher education since Bradley. You're, you're doing so off the back of your own depth and breadth of experience applied to this most significant activity for the future of our, our, our sector. Are you enjoying what you're doing at the moment, the responsibility that's been given to you to, as I might put it, changing higher education for good, Mary? Absolutely. It's, it's tremendous and tremendously challenging and it's tremendously exciting. Yes, it's enjoyable. Sometimes it's a bit scary. Um, but it's something I really, really am, um, I'm, I'm liking, I'm enjoying, and I'm finding many good aspects to it too, as well as the intellectual stimulation, um, just reconnecting with people. So it's been wonderful to see you. We haven't caught up for a few years, and it's been fantastic to see what you've done, you know, with, with HeadX. And it's been fantastic to see other things in the sector where, you know, people I've known for a long time have popped up doing very creative things and are turning up with big ideas. And I want to say thank you to all of them, everybody who's thinking about this and thinking of putting in a submission. We're really looking forward to reading what you've got to say. Well, you've um, certainly thrown down the gauntlet to us there, Mary, at Canberra last week and on this podcast podcast today and in all the steps you've taken in leading this accord to date. So for all of those invitations on such a critically important topic for the sector, I'm sure we all wish you really well. We um we can't wait to share big ideas with you and we're delighted that you're giving us the opportunity. And thank you for being our guest on HeadX today. Thank you. So that was what Mary had to say um, coming out of the conference about HeadX and the Accord and where we might fit in. Carl, what did you make of that? What I make of that is, as I, as I saw from Mary in Canberra, she is not someone that belongs at Hogwarts. You know, she is not any any university or or institution that thinks that we need to remain in a Hogwarts-like environment is going to be um, probably not keeping up with the Joneses. 
So I love that she's pragmatic. She's practical. She's down to earth. Down to earth. She used very accessible language for everyone. This is not language that is going to be foreign to uh, the employers and foreign to companies, foreign to industry, foreign to sector, foreign to tech. We all get it. We can all understand what she's asking for here and what we need to do. So I thought that was very, very inviting, very, very accessible. Um, and she's very attentive. You know, she understands what's required here and she's open to um, investigation and listening. Yeah, I, I very much agree, Carl. It's, um, I mean, it's so encouraging for, I think, for everybody to be being given an opportunity to facilitate big ideas and and to have the chance to really bring leverage to to some of the thinking that we've all been involved in in changing higher education to good. And it's great to see the value and worth of our work today to have a, a real outlet in policy change. And look, um, her openness in that interview to the, the scale of big ideas and they might come from internationally, from outside the sector, her openness to the contribution and the importance of partnerships with EdTech, that that was for me a real um, endorsement of so much of the thinking that we've been br- trying to bring over the last two or three years to mm. um, real change in the sector and a really more dynamic environment in in the future. And yes, the the opposite of Hogwarts, <laughs> and a real chance to see um, a much more contemporary learning environment for all of our futures is what I took from that interview. She also used some interesting language that. Is, is not new language from where I'm from. So she talked about not in the same, not the same expression, but rapid prototyping, minimal viable product, um, where we develop and then we continually review. It's almost a Kaizen approach where there's perpetual improvement as a methodology. Now, from a culture standpoint, there's a cultural uh, mandate associated with that in that organizations can't perpetually innovate and review and iterate if they don't have a particular culture for that strategy. Now that's going to be brand new to a whole lot of institutions. And I'm really excited about how they're going to approach that, how they're going to look for perpetual innovation that's in a collaborative sense that delivers. And that's really what she's talking about here. She mentioned it in Canberra as well, that we're looking for things to come out of the sector that affect industry and drive the economy. She's mentioned that in several phrases. So she talked about the, and you led this beautifully and in your understanding, I know we can talk about this later on, that there's a changing uh, population growth. There's a change in birth rates. All that's going to have a profound effect on the sector. And there's going to need to be some substitutes and subsidization around AI and other workforce elements. But she was very clear that innovation and reviewing where we get to isn't a one-stop shop. It's not a point in time or a moment in time. It's a way of operating. And to my mind, that language says culture. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right, Carl. That's the overriding feel I got in Canberra last week. And um, just in, in that interview with, with Mary since then, that so, so many reviews as part of the policy developments and so many people in sectors that are subject to review see them as, oh, not another review that's just going to, at a point in time, tweak the settings uh, a little bit, and then we can all get on and ignore it and carry on as we were. You really get a feel in this case that this is a point of inflection, a point of time of change, a change in terms of of looking at things differently. And there's a number of dimensions of that that you've picked upon. It's it's not change as a one-off um, setting change that then gets set for set and forget for good. 
it's a time of continuous innovation for our sector uh, and a reset in that way but it's also a long-term view i mean this is a one-year review process which is longer than is often the case mm. with a 20 or 30 year time horizon and as soon as you start to look that far out you have to look a little bit differently and further than just where's your, your student numbers coming from this year and how does your curriculum need to change for this current set of students you have to start to think about how you set up yourself up for long-term success, long-term cultural innovation, long-term change. And you're right, that has profound implications on leadership and culture. And Mary has openly encouraged all sorts of conversation, be it formal and informal. How do we bring people together? How do we create a, an environment where people are really comfortable in sharing all sorts of perspectives? I know at our HeadX event, the challenge event in Melbourne Connect in two weeks time, that's going to be absolutely right at the front of the things that we're exploring at the moment. Some of the questions that Mary asked there, questions, topics, areas of exploration include, can we actually do this? Do, does the future come from within the current system or do we need to build new brands, new universities? And I've got, a, I don't know the answer and I don't know that anyone knows the answer, which is why it's so great that we get to explore this through a collaborative means. Well, and um, the analogy that came out of my interview with Mary that, that I found quite humorous was talk, talking about it in terms of who you talk, who and what you talk about at the barbecue at the weekend in terms of things going on in, in your worlds and in your lives. And for too, much, too long, I think, the sector has been going to its own barbecues and having a conversation with itself. Mary herself, and, and it occurred to me that that's what we're trying to do in headaches and succeeding to a significant degree, are getting gatherings of people not only from the sector, but dynamic ideas of people that have never been to our barbecue before. And have got different things to offer to the conversation, different perspectives. And the chance to really enrich that social gathering and that breadth of dialogue in a different way is what this accord brings to us and what our live events as, he as HEDEX as soon as two weeks' time with a program to follow that for the whole year is really allowing us to bring to the sector. It's going to be a really exciting opportunity, Carl. Um, let's uh, bring all of that to our conversation in Melbourne and our work in HEDEX as we as we enter this University Accord year of 2023. And that's all we have time for on this episode of HEDEX. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Carl.